I remember back back then when I came here, I would actually write letters. I would actually take a pen and paper and write. <laughs> I would write to my girlfriend at the time. I would write a letter and I would wait two, three months for the response to come in. Wow. And then you find that in a year, you receive maybe two, three mails or four mails. Because it, yeah. it, it will take time. Born and raised in the motherland, chasing a better life. Story of an immigrant. Concrete pastures. Concrete pastures. Hello, family. You are listening to Concrete Pastures. I am Nancy Mulemwasisi. Being an immigrant has been one of the most challenging and extraordinary experiences of my life. It inspired me to create a platform to reach out to my fellow immigrants and dreamers. The goal is to provide a space for myself and others to share our stories as we deconstruct the world's view of immigrant status. We discuss issues that are important to us in the diaspora. We celebrate the joys, the laughs, the bravery that being an immigrant brings. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We appreciate your support. To all of our new listeners, welcome to the family. You can continue to support us by downloading our new app for free on Google Play. You get access to our whole Concrete Pastures library. While you are there, feel free to support us by giving us a donation. We are an independent podcast. You can also buy our merchandise. 50% of the proceedings go back to our veteran that makes them. You can also support us by subscribing or following us on all social media platforms. Thank you so much to everybody who has been writing reviews on different platforms that you're listening on and DMing us on how you are loving the episodes. Thank you so much. We love hearing from you. Our guests love hearing from you. Oh, so if you know anybody who is coming to the US of A here in New York, if that person is you, the truth is many of us arrive to the new destination feeling all inspired, uh, ready to write your new chapter in the new country. Concrete Pastures want to help you integrate. Nobody makes it alone in a new country, and we want to make sure that you integrate the right way. We want to support you, whether you have somebody here or not. We want to make sure that we support you when you come here. So if you are that person and you are in your country, you have your visa, you're ready to come, feel free to reach out to us. We have the link tree in the show notes. Click on it. Feel free to reach out to uh, to me. And I'll be able to help you even to answer just a few questions, even about weather, what to wear or how to get a job. What does that look like? All right. We offer a wrapped around service based on your needs. So you fully and successfully integrating in your new country. All right. Can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much, FMG Radio, for continuing to give us visibility on your platform. On today's episode, it's a two-part conversation. There was a lot to unpack with our next guest. I am so grateful. He is someone I respect, someone I've been admiring from afar, and I'm grateful to have him here today. Mr. Noan Delovu is a multi-talented individual. He is an Afrocentric philosopher of science, public intellectual, an award-winning author, poet, podcast host, and a community leader. He is the founding president of the Zambian Association Network of the United States, ZANUS, and the Zambian Association of Indiana. He is also the chairman for Premier Media. Welcome. 
It, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here to share some moments. I am glad to be here. Oh, I'm so honored to have you here. For starters, you are my countrymate. You're from Africa, from Zambia. I'm just interested to know what Zambia was like for you. Do you mind sharing just a little bit of what it was like being in Zambia before you came to the US of A? Sure, sure, sure. I, I grew up in Lusaka. I was born and bred and raised in the great city of Lusaka. I never traveled much outside Lusaka. I think the furthest I'd gone in Lusaka was Fera. I grew up in a little town called Fera, and most people refer to it as Luangwa. So my parents used to work for Zambia Airways before it disappeared under the privatization, but my father had gone for further studies in the UK. So my brother and I were conveniently sent to Luangwa. <laughs> <laughs> A place called Fera. So that's wow. where I, I started my grade one and two. Was back then in the early 80s. Wow, it's it, it's amazing what time can do. <laughs> so I grew up there for, I, I spent a little bit of time that side. And then I went back to Lusaka when my parents came back from the UK and... I continued my education in Osaka. I went to Monali, completed at Monali. Wow. Previously, it used to be Monali Boys, I think in 20, no, in 1995, I think that's when the girls were incorporated into the school. But previously, it used to be Monali Boys, and then it changed to Monali High School. So I completed high school in 1997 at Monali. So growing up in Zambia, I have a lot of fond memories, a lot of fond memories, especially in my little town of Fera, but most of my education was done in Lusaka. Uh, when I completed high school, an opportunity, I worked a little bit for uh, Professor Menechanya, he used to be the Vice Chancellor uh, uh, of UNSA back then. and. An opportunity came up in late 2009-ish to come to the United States. Mm -hmm. So, and then I've been here since 2000. So that's a little bit about my background. We can talk a little bit more about the stories from Farah, if you want. <laughs> yes, please do share. I, I, the thing is, this is the first time I'm hearing about Farah. Mm -hmm. uh, I I mean I grew up in Mongo most of my uh, my years in Zambia, mm -hmm. and um, this is the first time I'm hearing about Fera. So I'd love to know how was life there. Uh, who was living in Fera? Your parents or no? My my grandmother because my my dad and mom had gone to the UK because my father he worked for Zambia Airways at the time. Right. He used to be one of the accountants, so he had been sent there for further schooling, education, I believe. And he went with my mom and my other uh, immediate brother. So I been, uh, uh, myself and my older brother, we were sent to, it's actually considered to be part of Lusaka district or Lusaka province. So Fera or Luangwa is mostly known for the Luangwa river. Yes. And also the fish, because there, there is a lot of fish. They will say, oh, this is Luangwa fish. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's at the border of, on the other side, you can actually see Mozambique on one side. And on the other wow. side, you could see uh, Zimbabwe. So wow. I spent about two years of my time when I was just a little, little boy, because I started my first grade at Luangwa uh, Primary School. And at the time, my brother and I stayed with my grandmother. This is on my mother's side. So she took her, took, took care of us when my parents, like I said, they were uh, up in, in the UK for further studies. And when they came back, then we went back to, to Lusaka to join them. But the fond memories that I have for Luangwa, because there was one time when the Luangwa Bridge had flooded. And I remember clearly we would cross when obviously when there was no water we would walk across 
But on this particular day, it had rained so heavily that the path where we used to path when it's ordinary dry day, it was flooded. And this was back in 1985. I was just a little, little penguin. <laughs> just a little, little, little guy. So we had to, because we would pay a turning way. I remember clearly, even the animal which was on the turning way. I don't know if my, now people even use those coins. But no, I, I left that. I don't think we were using coins when I left in 2002. Yeah, because now this is back in 1985. A long, long time ago. So we would pay some people, obviously, because we were young, to take us across to the other side. So on this particular day, it had flooded so much. And then the friend that we were with didn't have the turning way to pay those guys to <laughs> take us across. So we decided that it would be best for us all to just to cross uh, to sort of take the chance and swim across and I was this little little guy my brother and the other friend his name uh, I mean I lost contact his name was Joe so we took we put our books because back then we didn't even have a backpack mm-hmm. we we would put books in those plastics where you put bread uh-huh <laughs> yes the, the ones with the lines Oh, yeah, yeah. So we just put the books in there and then we held them on top of our heads like this. And then we made it across. So that's one of the fond memories. And then obviously the the fish, because we would, my grandparents uh, would go, obviously he was a fisherman. He would go and uh, he would bring us all kinds of fish. But I mean, in 1985, I was just a little, little boy. But I still have fond memories of just growing up around that time and seeing the people eating the natural food. I mean, like, I like, I mean, the food that we have uh, across here, I, I just have fond memories of growing up uh, in Luangwa and just missing, I, I miss, I mean, I wish I could go back. <laughs> if, I, if, if you invent a time machine, I would yeah. love to go and spend a little bit of time back then and just to take in the 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 the, the scenery because yeah. we would go and hunt and we would go and just do all kinds of things in a little bush with some friends so now when I look back I'm like oh those were the times <laughs> your imagination work was like at its peak oh yeah and, yeah and the bravery you guys crossing the river oh my god and the thing is, you see, now kids nowadays they they are always exercising their thumbs on these electronics. <laughs> Back then, we didn't have electronics, so it was uh, it was a beautiful time just to enjoy nature and to be outside. Because I think I remember back then we would spend most of our time outside. The parents would come and stand by the door, and they would scream out your name, and then. They're calling yeah. back. But now the kids of nowadays, they are always indoors. You can hardly get them out there. So it's the complete opposite of the time that we grew up to the time that we have uh, today. Yeah, no, that's beautiful, though. I, uh, You reminded me also of my childhood just now, the, the fishing. Um, I, I remember when I used to go visit my grandmother on my dad's side, Mm-hmm. To get mosquito nets because she did, she couldn't afford to buy the nets, the actual fish uh, fish nets. So we would get the mosquito nets, and that's what we would use to catch those nice small fish. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just took me there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We we had the mosquito net. I remember obviously because it it used to get very hot, but I'm told now it gets very hot in Zambia. I've heard, yes, I've heard the same. So we would actually sleep outside. That's one of my fond memories. We would actually sleep outside and it was safe. I mean, no crime. It Mm. was just nothing like the, I think the times have changed, but I I remember a few times we would actually sleep outside with my grandpa and my brother. So fond memories. Wow, pretty cool. So you come from Luangwa, your parents are back in Lusaka. Um, 
you finish your, I guess, your grade 12 and you start working for UNSA? No, so I worked for the vice chancellor, uh, Professor Monechanya, who used to have a, a little company called Cyberlinks at Findeco House. So I completed in 1997. And so let me backtrack a little bit. So I spent about three years in Rwanda from 85 to about 87. Mm-hmm. And then when my parents, at this time, my parents were in the UK. So my parents come back to Lusaka and then we joined them. So I completed my my primary in, in Lusaka and then my high school in 97 when I completed, I worked for a company which the first company that I worked for was uh, unfortunately, the gentleman died. It was uh, owned or co-owned by Professor. Um, you know, it's been a while. The name has even escaped me. But I okay. went for okay. the second. The second company. It was owned by two German uh, couple, Ricky and uh, the, the the lady's name was uh, Ricky. And the the husband was semi based in Lusaka and also in Germany. I think they had a company, Habitals. Habitals, if you remember going into town, they somewhere near Northmead, there was a place called Habitals. Most of the towns, I think, were um, uh, manufactured by or the company that made most of those. Uh, available in Zambia was a company called Habit House. So they have a, a, they had a different company called Festnet. So the first company that, that I worked for in Zambia was called Festnet. So when I I transitioned from Festnet, then I worked for Professor Mwedechania, who uh, had a company at the Findeco House. So we worked, I worked Findeco House a little bit back in the late 90s. And an opportunity came came up to come to the U.S. and then I've been here ever since. Oh, wow. So when you came to the U.S., where did you go? You came straight to Indiana? No, so when I came to the U.S., I went to, there's a little place again in Michigan, most people may not know. So the first place that I went to when I came from Zambia, I went to a university called Michigan Technological University, mm-hmm. which is a place called Holton. So if you ask any, most people from Michigan, they, they have no idea. There's a place called Horton. It's right on the edge close to Canada. Mm. So we that's the first place I went to because I was there at the school. And I remember when I got to, obviously, landed at Detroit and then made my way to Greyhound to get on Greyhound to go to this place. So I was asking the people, uh, my friend and I, asking the the workers, the people who work for Greyhound, hey, I'm trying to get to this this place. And they had to consult. I don't know this place. I don't know this place. Oh, so wow. it, they, there's a place called Houghton. It's in Michigan. I don't have, have you heard of that place? No, I, I mean, I've been to Michigan. I, yeah, because most people, two when times. they think of Michigan, so is Niles and uh, these other places, but I think it's yeah. a little town. It's out there. Check it no, out. That's I've never. <laughs> I'll, I'll look it up now. Whole town. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so that, that's the place. That's the first place I went there uh, in a little town called Houghton, uh, where they have this uh, huge university, Michigan Technological University. How was it adjusting? Because I know Michigan is super cold. You're coming from Zambia, which, mm-hmm. I mean, we have all these different seasons, but not compared to the American weather and how it is in Michigan, for sure. How was it adjusting to uh, <laughs> everything, really? Yeah, I think like, uh, well, it's over 20 years, so it's been a while. So I think at that time I was much younger it was a newer version of myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's 20, 20 years removed. Oh, there we go. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I didn't really have a problem adjusting to the to the environment, the weather. Uh, obviously, it was cold because I got to the school. Uh, it was somewhere in May. And 
there was a little bit of snow still on the ground because usually by March for the most part then snow sort of be drying out in most places but this place uh, we had because obviously I was looking forward to seeing snow for the first time you know coming from Zambia you only hear about snow (laughs) but I didn't really maybe it's because I was much younger the body functioning at very high capacity and things like that uh, it wasn't really much of a, a challenge for me. I quickly adjusted, and before you know it, I became used to the the, the climate, the environment, the weather. So I know others. Uh, I've heard stories from friends who have a hard time, especially adjusting to a very cold climate, cold environment, to uh, dealing with snow. But for me, I guess maybe I was just, like I said, maybe being youthful when the body is very at the top, top most. <laughs> yeah, you know, like when you get in the 40s now, it's like, oh, my neck, oh, my back. Sciatica. <laughs> <laughs> Everything hurts. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, listen, it's, it's the mature age, the mature oh, yeah. age. When you get the mature age. But that's good that you didn't have any challenges. Because for me, I haven't still gotten used to the weather. I I mean, I love it here, but still, I, I just like you, I was looking forward to seeing the snow. And mm-hmm. the first time when the snow fell, I was just like, okay, I went outside. I wore my, my Timberlands, mm-hmm. went outside, played in it for a little bit. I was just like, okay, that's it. Experienced it. And mm-hmm. it was like six inches, a lot of it here. So that was yeah. my experience with, with with that. Yeah. I think like, I don't think people get used to the, maybe I guess people who like in Alaska where it gets super frigid cold. But for, I think like for me, it's you, you, you adjust your time because there's really nothing much you can do about it. Yeah. You just bundle up when it's snowing, you just bundle up or you stay indoors. Like right now, obviously, we're expecting some winter blizzard storm. Yeah. Uh, but for the most part, just stay indoors and get away from if you can. But I know there are folks who have to work on, on the outside. I mean, that, I know it's, I mean, I don't know how. It's brutal. The construction. Yeah. yeah, the construction workers, I know it's oh, it's it's something else. So, I mean, yeah. more power to them. But I think I've um, been fortunate enough at least to have been a little bit privileged, maybe if I could say, to not have found myself where I needed to be, uh, especially in the cold weather, working outside. Yeah. So it's adjusting to the weather for the most part. I mean, it hasn't really been much of a hassle. That's wonderful. So you go to your college. Were you there the whole time? You graduated from there? Yeah, so I I didn't finish. Uh, I transferred from there to one of the local colleges uh, uh, here in Indiana because I... There was a time when it was a little bit expensive. I'm sure, like, you know, when you come as an international student. Oh, forget it. Yeah, so the fees, I mean, it's something else. But the good thing is I was able to complete my education. I took some time off and then I completed my education. So fast forward, I transferred to, I went to a local college called Ivy Tech. So Ivy Tech is one of the community colleges. So I did my two years there. I have a, my associate degree is in, uh, in general studies. Mm-hmm. And there I transferred my, because I was actually going for a biological technology, uh, associate in biological technology. Then one of my friends says, hey, just transfer your classes and then go to this university. Then you can do another program there. It's much easier. So I'm like, oh, okay. So I think I just wanted to, I, I guess I got tired of um, 
the community college then i'm like no let me just go back to the university so i at the time i had enough classes so i transferred uh, i mean i was able to graduate not transfer i was able to graduate uh, with an associate degree and yeah. then i went to indiana university where i completed uh, my bachelor's degree and then uh, after my bachelor's degree i enrolled into master's program so i completed a uh, two uh, master's program so i was fortunate enough at least to have completed my education pushing it up where i, I felt very comfortable i have a uh, two master's degree one is in environmental health science and then the other one is in health policy management so at least as far as the education it worked out for me that's amazing I ask because all of us have different stories when it comes to mm-hmm. you know, we come here and some of the challenges that we face. And I went to community college because that's what I could afford because I was working yes. and paying for my own way to go to college. Mm-hmm. So when you go into university, super duper expensive. Even going to a community college, you're still paying as an international student more than the resident. So that's what I try to give to our listeners as to it's expensive to go to school unless you're coming with a scholarship that's paying for everything. Mm-hmm. Thank you for yeah, clarifying yeah. that. Mm-hmm. So you got into the health department. You work for the, the health department. From the time you graduated from uh, university, you work for the health department, specifically the HIV, correct me if I'm wrong, PrEP program? Yes, yes. So... Uh, when I graduated with my master's degree, I got a job at, ideally, let me back, backtrack a little bit. So my concentration, one of them is environmental health science. Mm-hmm. So ideally, I was hoping to get a gig with the EPA. So at that time, the EPA were not hiring or they, I didn't really have something that uh, uh, appealed to me at the time. And Sometimes, you know, there's these limitations with these openings. So my next best bet was to uh, apply at the health department because it's pretty much in the same sphere, public health. So mm-hmm. I got in with the Indiana Department of Health. I started out as a, a public health administrator and my specific role was to work on in this, in the department or division of HIV, STD, and viral hepatitis. So I was working in a department called HIV prevention. So started out uh, working as a consultant specialist, then I moved up to uh, working as a HIV testing program manager. And then now I went up as the PrEP program director or program manager. So PrEP for those people who may not know is, it stands for Pre-Exposure Prophylaxis. So this is an acronym for or short abbreviation for the medication for people who are at a very high risk from contracting HIV. So it's more like family planning because family planning, people take family planning to prevent uh, getting pregnant. Pregnant? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so now PrEP, which is pre, like I say, pre-exposure prophylaxis, it's taking medication to prevent uh, the acquisition of HIV. Being an immigrant can be hard. Having been away from my home country for over 20 years has allowed me to experience these hardships firsthand. Throughout my journey, I've had a lot of challenges that were hard to bear juggling adjustment to a new country, obtaining my immigration papers, getting married, having children, establishing my career, and finding time for myself. Even though I've always had faith, I also relied on therapy, which gave me the tools to cope with the issues life brought me. My fellow dreamers, Let's remove the stigma around therapy and normalize seeking help with today's sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. Go to betterhelp.com slash pastures for 10% off your first month of therapy with BetterHelp. 
and get matched with a therapist who will listen and help in as little as 48 hours. So in most cases, that can be further broken down in people uh, who are in a discontent couples or couple where one person has HIV or the other person doesn't have. So the person who is usually on HIV, they take their uh, retroviral therapy medication to ORT and the person who is in a relationship with that person in order for them to prevent themselves from catching the, the virus, then they take PrEP. So this obviously, as a public health professional, I mean, I can talk freely because obviously when having sex, uh, most people cannot manage or contain uh, the use of the condom. So I think at some point people have to say, okay, instead of me just using the condoms every time, then let me just be on this medication so that at least as long as your viral load, if you are taking the medication, there's an adherence, the viral load for the person who has HIV reduces. And then the person who doesn't have HIV or is at a higher risk because they are dating somebody who has HIV, then they take the medication. So there is a campaign called U equals Hume, which means undetectable is untransmittable. For a person who has HIV, as long as they are taking the medication, then the viral load in their body or the viruses content in the body reduces because of the medication that they take. It gets to a point where the viral load is and the virus is undetectable in the system. It doesn't mean that it's dis it's it's been cured. It just is at the very low percentage to an extent that when they have sexual intercourse with a person who is uh, uh, living without HIV, the virus is not passed on to the other person. So that's the campaign which uh, some of us who are working in this field, we are very excited because the more people take the medication, the more... HIV will more likely become a thing of the past because there's two spheres of focus. Those who are taking HIV, they're taking the medication and those who are not, those who are at a higher risk, they're also taking the medication because that's how now the virus is going to be contained. So this is one of the things that we're excited about in the HIV arena, the U equals U and especially the pre-exposure prophylaxis. So we are it's one of the things that at least we are pushing out there as much as possible, especially when you look at where we are coming from, uh, back home in Africa, back home in Zambia. Last I checked, it was over 12% of the population, they are living with HIV. And when you look at here in the United States, it's just a small percentage of uh, less than 2% of the U.S. population, they are living with HIV. So the contrast, I mean, is just very wide. Is, or the prevalence of HIV back home is just way out of control. So I think with the strategies such as PrEP, I think uh, it to help to ensure that HIV is a thing of the past or it's not, it's contained for the most part. Because one of the, mm, the initiatives by the CDC or the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which is based in Atlanta, Georgia, and also the World Health Organization under the United Nations, they are pushing for what is called ending the HIV epidemic. Because the HIV epidemic has been around since the early 80s. Mm -hmm. And it has really devastated our people. So ending the HIV epidemic obviously just simply means with these initiatives, uh, PrEP, at U equals U, so most likely by 2030, the projection is at least we'll be seeing the incidence uh, rates for HIV at least is going to be reduced. So that's what we are hoping for. Wow. When I saw that, like I was on your LinkedIn and I looked at what you do, this is something that's very close to my heart. And I'm always either at work donating to Red and 
to contributing and seeing or constantly reading on what work is being done mm-hmm. to try to, I guess, get to the end of this epidemic. Like it's been long, mm-hmm. but before I even go into that, what got you into this work? What inspired you to get into this space? Yeah, I think that's that's a that's a beautiful question. I think I got into this HIV work one looking at the background where some of us are coming from, looking at the backdrop of Africa and the prevalence of this disease is just way out of control. When you look at countries like Botswana and you look at countries like South Africa and even our home country Zambia, huh. the, the incidence and the prevalence yeah. rate are very high compared to these other countries. So it was my way of wanting to do something meaningful. Like I say, my initial take was to work for the environmental health, uh, environmental uh, agency, the EPA, because uh, my background is mostly on the science part of that. And my goal was to work as an environmental engineer. And I looked at what's the second best option if I can't get there, yeah. <laughs> the first option. So getting myself in this field was one way of just helping to contribute to the uh, ending of this uh, terrible disease, which has impacted and affected most of us. I think if you... A lot of people. Yes, a lot, a lot of, of our people. A lot of our people. A lot of, uh, a lot of families, a lot yes. of... A lot of people. I, mm-hmm. I think everybody has been impacted, yes. especially yeah. in our country. Talking about our country, are you working with any department? I think I, 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 on one of your interviews, are you working with the Department of Health in Zambia to implement some of these initiatives that you might be working on, like PrEP? Um, do we have that in Zambia? Yeah, so PrEP is already on the ground in Zambia because the the first medication for PrEP, which was uh, approved here in the United States, it was a a medication called Truvada. It was FDA approved in 2012. So back, there were clinical trials. So before medication is put out there, there are usually clinical trials. And some of these clinical trials, usually they happen... Uh, uh, I don't know whether you can say it's a good thing or it's a bad thing, but obviously the prevalence, the, when I say prevalence is the more cases, uh, unfortunately, in, uh, on the African continent. Of course, there are high levels of HIV in uh, Latin America, Brazil, and these other places, but the sub-Saharan Africa for the most part. So this is where some of the clinical trials uh, for this medication are uh, conducted. So PrEP is already something that uh, the African continent is aware of. I'm not sure to the extent how it is being implemented and people uh, using that. But yes, so to answer your question, yeah. So I personally, I am not engaged directly with the, with the Minister of Health back home, but my goal is obviously to see how we can coordinate with the folks back home. So to that point, there is a conference that we are putting up with some of my friends. We are just sort of in the planning, talking phase or brainstorming to see how we can be bring a little bit of value to our country by ensuring that at least we are, because like you say, I mean, Obviously, you know, people who have died from HIV or people have been impacted. And I think we, we are all touched by that. Yeah. So just trying to see how can we work together to implement some of these initiatives and just to have a process map that is doable. Because we have a lot of kids, unfortunately, on the continent who obviously some of them, I mean, they, they were born with the condition. Yes. And obviously maybe from the parents and passed on. So just trying to bring about a lot of sensitization. I appreciate the work that is being done by most of the international organizations, but I, I believe as 
as, a, as an African, as a Zambian. I think it's up to us to do our due diligence to ensure that we're working and coordinating with the folks on the ground to bring about that meaningful change that we hope to see and that we desire. So we are doing everything that we can, especially on my part, to see how we can better position ourselves, number one, as a people, to have these resources, to have the material. Uh, we live at a time where we should be very glad and excited because we have the internet. Because yeah. we can text. Two seconds, there are people on the other side, they'll text back. I remember back back then when I came here, I would actually write letters. I would actually take a pen and paper and write. <laughs> I would write to my girlfriend at the time. I would write a letter and I would wait two, three months for the response <laughs> to come in. Wow. And then you find that in a year you receive maybe two, three mails or four mails because it, yep. it, it will take time. Mm-hmm. So my, my point here is we live at a time where everything is in an instant. So there's no need, even like the children that I mean, are born uh, and nowadays is their mindset, their way of um, internalizing or categorizing information differs from some of us because some of us, we grew up where we had to wait. Imagine you send a letter to your boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or relative, <laughs> and you had to wait for three, four months. Oh. And then they sometimes you're lucky you get something uh, in, in, in a month or two. So the point here is we are living at a time where we are very blessed to have this information era where information can easily be shared in an instant. So hoping to see what we can do with the Minister of Education education slash Minister of Health back home. Because for the folks in Zambia, I'm working for the equivalent of the Minister of Health. So the the agency that I work for is the Indiana Department of Health where I'm managing this PrEP program. So just trying to figure out what we need to do. So there's a conference that's going to be coming up uh, sometime next in this coming year. Uh, obviously, it's going to be centered like how do we as Africans, how do we as Zambians uh position ourselves to end this epidemic because it's not going to be one of the things that I've seen is like we always wait for somebody else to come and provide solutions. I believe the challenges to Africa, the problems that Africa has, for instance, HIV and AIDS, is not going to be addressed by the international organizations. Of course, they can help, which is a good thing. But it is going to take the African people, it's going to take the people like you and me as Zambian people to do what we need to do to end this disease, not really hoping for somebody else to come and make the donation here and there. That's always good, but I think we're hoping we can do something with the people back home and at least begin to... End or at least to kickstart the process of at least either changing their minds or uh, encouraging people to be more aware in decision making because information, like I say, is readily available. We have the internet. People are working with the libraries on their phone. They can access almost anything. We have YouTube. I mean, there's social media, Facebook, Instagram. I mean, like Everything is at it's our, it's our disposal. It's not like people there in Luangwa, they are uh, waiting for years for things to come. No. <laughs> Three months for mail. For, for mail. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. No, well said, well said. Why do you think we have a lot of cases in our countries, like um, Africa, for instance? Because for me, I know it's, uh, I mean, a little bit of the stigma around mm-hmm. discussing. Um, the issue of having it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else do you think is the issue 
that it continues to spread year over year. There's no change, really. Are we getting the right medication in terms of like the medication that they might have in the U.S. compared to what people in our countries are getting in mm -hmm. Africa? Is it the same thing or it's just a lack of education or the stigma? Yeah, so the, 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 again, that's a, a, a great question. So it, it could be both of both approaches because I think stigma is one of those things that I don't know if we'll ever get around stigma because you know our people they even come up with some terms uh, <laughs> yeah so it's it's very sad unfortunately because I think it has to start especially with the people who are living with HIV for instance one of the things that we I have learned myself is the term terminology that is used matters because I think mostly people you don't say somebody is infected because uh, the word infected may seem like a stigmatizing it may make people feel a certain way about themselves it sort of has a negative connotation but i think the education in terms of using the appropriate words for instance you don't say somebody's infected with hiv you say somebody's living with hiv because somebody could have hypertension and or some cardiovascular uh, ailments but they are still able to function yeah. and nobody stigmatizes them and the challenge with HIV is ensuring that at least we're using the proper uh, wording for uh, some of these terms ensuring that at least the people have the information uh, and also it, working with the people and sensitizing them to know that they have to do everything possible to avoid uh, the acquisition of HIV. I mean, I, I'll be honest with you, there are some ladies who are uh, those in Zambia who you would say like a, a prostitute. Mm -hmm. But here, the, the terminology that we are using, we say sex workers mm -hmm. or the more appropriate way which uh, has been standardized especially on this part of the world is you say a transactional sex because okay. you are making a, a transaction so the, I remember for instance like you could actually get a visa to go to uh, if I'm not mistaken that's New Zealand to work as a sex worker People could get, they, there are some countries, uh, they may have changed now to wait. You're giving people ideas. Because, <laughs> because they, they, they are satisfying a need. So now they were encouraging people that people have to be taking good care of themselves. For instance, people who work in this uh, adult industry, they have to get tested. Uh, before they go and, I mean, work, I mean, do, because they, that is considered work for the people who are in the, in the field. Industry. Yeah, in that, in that industry, that is considered, I'm working. So there's a lot that we need to do as a people, especially when we look at the prevalence and the high numbers that we have, is to ensure that why, where are we missing the mark? Is the education uh, being sufficient and appropriate? Are we using the right terminologies? And because I don't think we'll ever get to a point where we can clearly say stigma is out of the window because people have, like I say, people have got these terms like, oh, these people are, they are loading up or they're, you know, like how you load up your talk time, especially in Zambia. Yeah. Uh, they will say, oh, I mean, they will, will stigmatize and have that stereotype for people. That's not helping when it comes to ending the, uh, I mean, this uh, epidemic. 
And one of the other challenges is um, some people have lost fear for this disease because people say, oh, we have medicine. So that's one of the challenges like, oh, uh, there are some sex workers where they are willing to perform the theatrics and the act as long as the price is right. Wow. And then this person, because one of my friends was uh, doing an interview, trying, especially in this field where I'm in industry, uh, they said, no, if I catch HIV, there's medication. So now how do you counter that? So you see, it's, it's something that I think people have lost the fear of the disease because they feel like, oh, I'll just take the medication and then uh, I'll be fine. Because uh, I know back in the 80s when HIV uh, came on the scene, uh, a lot of people were afraid because HIV at the time was considered uh, this deadly disease. It's a deadly disease. Yeah. But through, with the advancements in technology, medication, and uh, in 1987, the first drug uh, by the FDA was AZT. And then there have been several medications that have been uh, put on the market to um, contain the, the, the disease. And especially on the PrEP side, now we even have PrEP. Uh, the earliest medication here in the U.S. was Truvada uh, in 2012. And in 2019, there is uh, another medication called Discovery. And they are now the generic kind. Because in the U.S., uh, I'm not familiar with how the system works in Zambia. When medication is put on the market, there is usually a 10-year patent. So the company that makes Truvada is Gilead. Gilead put out Truvada on the market in 2012 when it was approved. So the patent lasts over somewhere like after 10 years, which means other companies now, they can Gilead shares the technology uh, for the manf man man manufacturing of this disease, I mean, of this medication with other companies and then who can now make it uh, at a much lower cost. So they are... So I mean, we have the generic and the generic uh, brand and yeah. the, the the name brand. Got so it. the name brand is usually much expensive, but the other companies, because after a period of time, obviously they have recouped their investment in terms of the research and everything else. So at least after ten years, so it, it it's it's very difficult to pinpoint the answer to your question because if you have people who say they will take medication and yeah. they are not afraid of that so it, it is worrisome for us in public health because we would like to see a generation where HIV is a thing of the past but it starts with the people themselves because I think we need to do a lot of um, campaigns and education, especially on both sides, for those who are living with HIV, and then for those who are on a higher, uh, uh, they have a high likelihood of catching the HIV to ensure that at least they are taking PrEP. Just like I alluded to earlier, women who do not want to get pregnant, they go on a pill, or they take some uh, strategies yeah. to prevent uh, prevent themselves from uh, getting pregnant. So it's the same thing if you don't want to, as long as you are sexually active, which is almost everybody above 13, 12, I mean, I mean the CDC had to uh, the, the, one of the recommendations by the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control here in the United States is if you are sexually active or if you are 13 years and above you have to go for an HIV test. So ensuring that at least people are going for routine testing, I think that's going to be helpful. So we hope by engaging, uh, especially the education sector, 
to have some of these curriculum that are tailored to speak to these challenges that the communities are facing in conjunction with the Ministry of Health having that type of uh, resources available, I think that may mitigate some of these uh, gaps that we see. But otherwise, uh, I wish there was a silver bullet fix to ending the HIV. But, you know, people, uh, they, I mean, if you tell people to, uh, let, let me say something that uh, obviously most people may not know. Yeah, because when, when somebody comes to you and tells you, don't have too much sex. Obviously, people don't want to be told that. But you can say the same thing, but just saying it differently. Because though the, there are people who understand the dynamics of how things work. For instance, back in the 90s, I think it's still going on to now, where people will say, oh, a woman who is educated is less likely to have more children. So to get around telling people not just to have so many kids is to say, let's promote girl-child education. That is a back, backward way of achieving your goal because you are still telling people, hey, stop having kids. So, but when you tell people, hey, don't, don't have kids like that, they will say, no, you can't tell us what to do. So the approach was to strategically or to intelligently say, let's promote girl-child education. So most people, yes, let's promote. I mean, there's nothing wrong. The people jump on the bandwagon. Okay. Let's promote the girl-child. But what they are not consciously aware of is that less children, a woman who has who is more educated, is not going to be having three, four, five, seven, eight kids. So it's doing the same thing, but just approaching it differently. So this is why I think some of these international organizations, they are looking at how do we prevent some of these even population uh, influx? Because uh, there are people who look at the world is overpopulated. So one way to contain that is push the idea of promoting girl-child education because that's also one way saying, okay, we're going to slow down the, the rate of population because when you look at the Africa has the highest number of uh, the younger generation. And when you look at the Western countries, especially here in the United States, we have mostly some aging, aging uh, population. So it's a strategy that most people may not know, but at least now they know since I've, I've shared that. So it's just figuring out ways of doing certain things, but just being tact tactical about it. So I think the conference that I'm thinking of is in the same vein, looking at, okay, how do we tell people to not do certain things? For instance, if you tell people to abstain, you are just wasting your, your time. That was the message from uh, the beginning. I remember yeah, if you, yes. home, abstain, abstain. Yeah. abstain. If you tell people to abstain, you know it's not going to happen. It's yeah, it's happen. like encouraging, like you're pushing yeah. them towards the... Yeah. yeah. So it's best um, for, for us in public health is we have to be practical. You have to understand that the messaging of telling people... It, you, obviously you teach people to abstain but obviously you have to be practical in the sense that okay we have uh, safe sex kits condoms uh, dental dams and these other uh, tools that can help we are still trying to figure out from a public health perspective but otherwise we, we have a we have a long way to go that's it for this episode thank you again for lending us your ears it's truly an honor to save each and every dreamer you can continue to support us by liking sharing and following us on our social media pages the links are all in the show notes
We have so many exciting projects and ventures in store for you. Until next time, keep dreaming.